Well, good morning. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's been my privilege for over 13 years to fill this pulpit. Most Sundays, I take a Sunday off every now and then, but it's um, one of the joys of my life to be able to share God's Word with you. If you're visiting with us today, welcome. Uh, We have a gift for you. If you haven't already received one of the devotionals that I have written, um, uh, as you leave, there are some back here by these doors, I know. Uh, There are three different yearly devotionals. Love for you to grab one of those. If you've been visiting for a while but never grabbed one of them, those are free for you. The fourth one is at the publisher now. If... um, uh, and it should be here maybe in three or four, uh, three or four weeks. I appreciate you being here today uh, so much. Welcome to everybody that's watching uh, on uh, the internet and glad that you're there and look forward to you being in the service as soon as you possibly can. Obviously, in my opinion, as a preacher is worth his weight, he, um, we are all preaching on the same subject this morning. And that would be abortion. And um, one great problem I have with pastors is they won't tackle the subject. And I wonder how many of the 63 million that have been aborted since 1973 could have been saved if pastors had the courage to tackle it in their pulpits. It's a very difficult subject and will bring up um, pain for many of you because I know there are people in here who have had abortions and have paid for abortions. And there are people in here uh, that are watching have done the same. And it's not my uh, intent this morning to bring pain. It's just to bring light to this issue. Um, I'm going to tackle this subject from a lot of different areas, but I want to start with a video this morning. Now, um, there's a few points in this video that it's rather graphic. I chose probably the least graphic that I could show because I could have shown you some horrible videos, horrible videos. But there's a couple of points in here that uh, if you have very young children, um, you may want to be aware of that. But I uh, want to appeal to an authority that uh, has much more uh, expertise than I do on this, and that's why we're going to see a little three-minute video from uh, OBGYN. My name is Dr. Kathy Holman. I'm a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist with almost 33 years of experience, and I've completed over 500 abortions. Today I'm going to describe a second-trimester surgical abortion called dilation and evacuation, or D&E. A D&E is generally performed between 14 and 22 weeks of pregnancy. Before a D&E abortion can be done, The cervix must be dilated slowly over one to two days with laminaria or a similar product. Laminaria is a type of seaweed that absorbs water and swells to several times its original diameter. When the woman undergoes the evacuation portion of the procedure, she lies on a table with her legs in stirrups. She may be given injections of local anesthetic in the cervix, IV conscious sedation, or general anesthesia. The abortionist uses a speculum to open the vagina and uses an instrument to stabilize the cervix. Metal dilators may be used to further open the cervix if needed. Once the cervix has been stretched open, a cannula attached to suction tubing is placed inside the uterus. The suction machine is then turned on and the amniotic fluid surrounding the fetus is suctioned out. The fetus is too large to fit through the cannula, so he or she must be removed in pieces with a clamp such as this sofa clamp. A sofa clamp is made of stainless steel and is about 13 inches long. At the tip, 
their rows of teeth for grasping. The abortionist reaches into the uterus with the clamp and tries to grasp an arm or leg. Once the abortionist has a firm grip, she pulls forcefully in order to remove the limb. Piece by piece, the abortionist removes the arms and legs, followed by the head or the body, including the torso and pelvis, along with the intestines, the heart, and the lungs. The placenta is also removed. If the cervix has been overdilated, the body or even the entire fetus may be pulled out intact. Usually, the most difficult part of the procedure is extracting the fetus's head, which at 20 weeks is about the size of a large plum. The abortionist must open the clamp widely to grasp the head and then crush it so that it will fit through the cervix. The abortionist knows he has crushed the skull when a white substance, the fetus's brains, leaks out through the cervix. The abortionist then removes the compressed head. Any remaining limbs, organs, bone fragments, or pieces of placenta not removed with the forceps are removed by scraping the uterine lining with a large curette or by reinserting the suction cannula. The abortionist then reassembles the fetal parts to make sure that there is nothing left inside the uterus which could cause infection or bleeding. Once all the parts have been accounted for, the bleeding has been controlled, and all the instruments have been removed from the vagina, the abortion is considered complete. For the woman, this procedure carries a risk of major complications, including perforation or laceration of the uterus or cervix, with possible damage to bowel, bladder, or other maternal organs. Infection and hemorrhage can also occur, which can lead to death. Future pregnancies are also at an increased risk for loss or premature delivery due to abortion-related physical trauma and injury to the cervix. As I mentioned at the beginning, I used to perform abortions. At the time, I truly believed I was helping women. After the birth of my daughter, however, I realized that abortion doesn't just end a pregnancy. It kills an innocent human being. Such terms as zygote, embryo, or fetus are simply terms that refer to age, like infant, toddler, and adult, and do nothing to diminish the humanity of the child. As I cared for women in my OBGYN practice, I also learned how abortion harms women. I stopped doing abortions because I could no longer kill babies just because they were unwanted. I am now a pro-life advocate. I am proof that anyone can change, no matter who they are or what they've done. I invite you to join me and make a decision to protect the preborn. Thank you for watching. Now the pro-choice crowd will be quick to say that um, only five to seven percent are second trimester, and that is absolutely correct. But that means that 45,000 babies in America last year were aborted that way. And it is rare, but it does happen that a doctor will forget a piece. And that's why they're taught to reassemble on the outside, because obviously leaving a piece in is, is cause for infection for the female. Now, I'm sorry if that video offended you, but um, that is happening. And we stick our head in the sand and live in our own little make-believe world if we don't want to hear about stuff like that. There are enough Christians, there are enough Christians in Ohio to defeat this if they will care enough and will go to the polls.
As I said earlier, unfortunately, there a lot of pastors will let today go by and have let the whole season go by without mentioning this under the guise that this is a political issue. Hear me, friends. This is a moral issue. This is a moral issue and one that us who profess a call to bring God's word and message to the masses are need to have the courage to speak to this even though the criticism that will naturally come there's a lot of different ways that i can go about this subject but one way that we absolutely have to go about this subject and all subjects is with grace and with truth okay john 1 says jesus came full of grace and truth and every single issue that we face in our lives, us who claim the name of Christ have to attack that graciously but not avoiding the truth. And too many of us will come at this subject with one or the other and not with a combination of both. And so I say at the top, I hope I come about this with grace and with truth. And if I don't, I need to moderate that. I'm naturally a truther. Some of you are naturally a gracer. And for us who are truthers, we have to lean toward grace. And for those of you who are naturally gracers, you have to lean toward truth. But both are vital in this discussion and any discussion that we have. When I talk about this, I could come to this from the point of fetal development. I could tell you by eight weeks, Everything is there already in the embryo, zygote, fetus, whatever you want to call it. I won't argue those words because those words are just a stage of development like infant and toddler are, just as you heard her say in the video. At eight weeks, everything is there already in the fetus that the child needs to live. Obviously not yet at a, a strong enough that the child would be survivable outside the womb. But lungs and brain and all body parts are already there. The only thing that child needs more at eight weeks is time, food, water, and air. That's all the child needs. So I could come to you and talk to this under the guise of fetal development. I could be able to tell you that the Bible has no concept of prenatal and postnatal. The Bible just doesn't have any concept of that. When Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist, it says in Luke 141 that the baby leaped in her womb. And that Greek word there is used for baby is the same Greek word that's used in Luke 1815 where Luke wrote, people were also bringing babies to Jesus. Same word. Same Greek word. And is it fascinating that Luke was a physician? Luke was a physician. The Bible has no understanding of prenatal and postnatal. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Same exact word that was used for the baby in Elizabeth's womb, the babies that were brought to Jesus, and from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, talking to Timothy. The Bible has no concept about prenatal and postnatal. I, I could come to you from under the guise of fetal development. I could come to you with statistics. 
and tell you that 2,500 plus babies are aborted every day. You take the number of total abortions divided by 365 and 2,500 plus are aborted every day. The good news on that is there are 600,000 less abortions than there were at the high in 1990. Good news. Good news. But 2,500 plus every single day. 63 million since 1973 in the Roe v. Wade decision. 63 million plus. That's more than the population of 28 states combined. I did the math this morning. That's more than the population of 28 states combined. It's almost one out of every five persons in the United States. We have a financial problem in the United States with not enough money and we're so far in debt. I wonder how many taxpayers we have aborted. And then babies from them that would be taxpayers. And how much more money we would come in to the government's coffers if 63 million babies were not aborted. I could come to you from the age of, from the development, from the topic of statistics, excuse me. I've already shown you a video. I could show you barbaric videos that you would be angry with me. And I know that you know them. I know everyone knows of that procedure. No one is surprised because I know you are informed. And I know you don't stick your head in the sand. So no one was surprised by that video. But I could show you barbaric videos. I could have played you audios like I did when I preached on this several years ago. I could have shown you audio of women giving their testimony of what happened during the abortion and like it was nothing that they told me to do and how my sister held my hand through the whole thing and the lady starts crying because her sister had to witness it and how the sound of the vacuum is like a 747 and it's unlike any sound they've ever heard and and the baby was when the baby was taken out one doctor told the lady now when it stops twitching tell me and one doctor was callous enough to, after the abortion was over, to come back to the mother and say, you had twins. Can you even imagine the callousness of that physician? By the way, 90% plus, 90 plus of OB, OBGYNs do not perform abortions. They know. They know. I've come to tell you this morning, even though I could approach it from a lot of different angles, I've come to tell you this morning that abortion is about God. You'll never hear that, but it is. It was God who decided that a sperm would, would travel up the birth canal and unite with an egg, and somehow that miracle nine months later would become a bouncing baby boy or girl. That's all about God. God decided that. God is the one that came up with motherhood. God could have decided to bring children into this earth any way he chose to bring them. But he chose that, he chose that we would have something called mothers, that we had something called fathers. Abortion is all about God. And every zygote, every embryo, every fetus is created in the image of God. A fascinating statistic, not statistic, a fascinating concept that the Bible presents in, in Genesis 1, before the fall of man, it says we are created. Let's make man in our own image. Let's make man. 
Let us make man in our own image, which is a a precursor of Trinity right there, of the Trinity. Let us make man in our own image. And but we know about Genesis chapter 3, we have the fall of man. We know the flood comes up, but after the fall of man and after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, these words are recorded. God saying, whoever sheds human blood by human shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God created man kind and so man is not only created in God's image before the fall man is created in God's image after the fall that's tremendously important theologically tremendously important theologically I'm here to tell you that abortion is about is about God God's came up with the idea of an embryo God came up with the idea of a zygote God came up with the idea of a fetus God came up with the idea of nine months God came up with the idea that after 21, 22, it's debatable, weeks that child could be viable outside of the mother's womb. Abortion is about God. You hear every now and then that, that an argument for abortion is, I don't want to bring a child into this situation. So it's, it's, it's an unmarried uh, mother, or it's a bad situation, or it's an abusive father, or or it's a very, very poor family, and we've got five kids on welfare, and we don't need six. And, and, and sometimes those arguments could be convincing. But can I tell you, each one of those poor children, each one of those children that would be go into a bad home, they're created in the image of God. And how condescending it is to think that because you're poor or because you're raised in a bad home that you're not worthy of life. How arrogant of us middle, upper middle class people to think we're only ones that are worthy of life and how a poor family or a welfare family is not worthy of life so we'll just abort them. How condescending and how arrogant that argument is. Everyone is created in the image of God. And they have worth and dignity because they're created in the image of God. But let's be honest, there's lots of emotional situations. And one thing I've learned through the last four weeks where I've spent gobs of hours talking about this, if you want to go on the Xenia Community Open Forum and see the amount of time that I have spent arguing the pro-life side and the number of names that I've been called and so forth and so on, you can see that. But there are difficult situations. I, I, I get that, man. There are difficult situations. I know that. I've got some difficult situations written on the board, on the screen for you behind me. There's a mother and a father, and they're at the bottom of the poverty level. They have nothing, absolutely nothing, except 14 children. The mother is pregnant again. What abortion? Would abortion be considered acceptable here, and should she just keep on breeding? The next scenario I have is what if a man of one particular race, let's say white, violently rapes a young girl of another race, let's say black, should the parents consider abortion? Do they have that right? Another difficult situation. What if a husband who is constantly sick has a wife with a dreaded disease like tuberculosis? What if they have four children? Let's say one is blind, the second died the third is deaf the fourth has tuberculosis like the mother should her pregnancy of the fifth child be ended 
and one that's so common in 2023. A teenage girl gets pregnant. Her boyfriend slash fiance is not the father and is very upset. What should they do? Well, could I tell you that if you abort the first situation where the mother had 14 children, if you abort that, then you would have aborted John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. The second situation where a white guy violently rapes a black girl, if you would have aborted, you would have aborted Ethel Waters, famous gospel singer who was a partner with Billy Graham in many of his crusades. If you were, the third situation, if you would have aborted the dad had tuberculosis, one of the kids was blind, one of them had died, another one had tuberculosis, would you abort the fifth one? If you did, you would have aborted Beethoven. And we say we shouldn't bring children into a bad situation. And the last situation, which you know of these situations, you, you, you can put names to these situations where the little teenage girl, she got pregnant by another guy, wasn't her boyfriend slash fiance, what should they do? Well, you know what? Jesus Christ would have been aborted. No matter their station in life, everyone is created in the image of God. Abortion. Abortion is about God. I'm tempted to talk about it from a medical standpoint because the medical standpoint proves that abortion is about God. Do you know from the time that that sperm fertilizes that egg and that, and that egg then implants, it bounces around for a few days and then implants in their uterus? You know, from the time that it implants in the uterus till it's six weeks old, it's grown 10,000 times its original size and weight. If something doesn't stop that kind of growth, that baby would be four tons upon delivery. And you thought you had a big baby. <laughs> if God didn't slow down that kind of development, <laughs> there'd be a four-ton baby. Abortion is about God because people are, God, people are about God, and birth is about God, and pregnancy is about God. And every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever been born has been created in the image of God. And, and the purpose of God creating you. Think, why did God, think about this, what's your purpose in life? Why did, why did God create man to begin with? Was he lonely? Well, he wasn't lonely because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Did he just want to look down on us and laugh at all the stupid stuff we do? Why did God create us? Why are you here? There's only one reason you're here and I'm here. Only one. We're, we're to bring forth his image into this world. It's the only reason. Whether I am a upper middle class infant raised by two college educated parents or whatever it may be, Or I'm a poor child 
whose mother's having their fifth child out of wedlock. I have to admit to you, I, I, I struggle some. Eleven weeks ago on Facebook, a little 17-year-old girl, Kenzie, blurted out to all the world that she was pregnant. And I have to admit that when I read that, I said, the cycle continues. That was my first reaction. But she's decided to have the baby, and now 11 weeks later, she's very excited about that. So while the cycle has continued, I'm glad she hasn't chose abortion. And how can we help her? How can we come beside her and help her, church? How can we support her? A criticism that the pro-choice crowd gives us is that we're pro-birth, we're not pro-life. You're pro having the child born, but you don't want anything to do with it after it's born. I wonder how many situations that we as a church of Jesus Christ can support these girls who've made a mistake, but they've chosen the right thing and help them through this in some way instead of just saying, like my first reaction was, the cycle continues. And God spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but in the way that he speaks to you too. He said, Mark's don't you want her to have a baby? And how can we as a church of Jesus Christ not only be pro-birth, but pro-life as well? How can we come beside these women who have had abortions and not shun them and not look down on them, but proclaim to them the forgiveness that is available in Jesus Christ? After the first service, received three stories of abortions from people in the first service. I also heard a story of, of two people who were to be aborted, but their mother decided not. The stories are out there by the hundreds of thousands. It's who we are. Abortion is about God because everyone is created in his image. All people, no matter if you're middle class, upper middle class, or at the bottom of the societal rung, wherever that is. And who am I to be judge and jury and say, this child's going to have a bad life, so I need to abort it. Who am I to make, be judge and jury on that situation? Get behind the people that choose life, support them, help them. We're all created in the image of God. That's why you'll never, I just don't like the bumper sticker, I'm a proud student, I'm a, I'm a proud father of an A student at Arrowhead Elementary or whatever. I don't like that. I'm no more proud of my boys because of their achievements than I am if they didn't achieve. I cannot communicate to them that I'm more proud because of the good things they do than I am just because of the normal everyday thing they do. And I'm no more proud if he hit a home run and with two outs in the bottom of the ninth to win the game than I am if he struck out with two outs in the bottom of the ninth and lost the game. Be careful. Be careful. My dad taught me this. Be careful on when you only build up their achievements. I love my boys. I love my boys, whether they achieve or whether they do not achieve. Everyone, poor achieving child, 
is created in the image of God. That child that gets on your ever-loving last nerve is created in the image of God. Now, if Levi brings home all Fs, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have a problem. <laughs> and privileges will be removed. And we no longer will pray for his, pay for his cell phone. And he'll lose use of his truck. It's not his truck, it's my truck. But his achievements do not make me any more prouder. He's created in the image of God. And when he messes up, he's my boy. He'll always be my boy. James chapter 4 has always been uh, a verse of scripture that I have seen as an abortion verse, even though I know that when James wrote this, he didn't have abortion in mind. I know that. Even though abortion, even though they did have abortion 2,000 years ago. James writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desire that battles within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. The next verse says, you covet and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Abortion is about God, but when women have abortion, it's about them, or it's about their boyfriend who made them have it, or it's about their mother. Just heard last night of a mother who, who forced the abortion because she could not stand to tell her friends. It happens, friend. And I don't think sometimes us nice little middle class people understand that it does. See, God, God wants us to have his desires and wants our desires be, be toward, bent toward him. But the problems that we have in life is that we desire, we want what we want. So James says you quarrel and you fight and you, you covet. And even in the first verse he said you kill. If you, look for, if you look at the reason that women have abortions, they're all about them or their boyfriend or their mother or father who they didn't, they didn't want the, her to have the baby. 40% of the women that have abortions claim that she had it because of financial circumstances. 36% said the timing just was not right. Me, my desires, my boyfriend's desires, my mother's desire not to be humiliated by her friends. Thirty-one percent said they had abortions because they had unstable relationships. Well, if, if that relationship was so unstable, why did you have sex with him? See, when, when I argue this, I don't ever talk about abstinence because you get pummeled pummeled but I wonder how many of the 63 million that have been aborted if 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 pre if abstaining from premarital sex had been practiced how many of those would be alive today people will say well abortion well where birth control fails sometimes it does in a small small sliver of times I've never known abstinence to fail but I get pummeled I don't ever argue from a Christian perspective. I don't ever use the Bible because you don't have to. 
And it would be silly of me to use the Bible. I see Christians do this all the time. They'll quote, quote some verse. Those verses don't mean anything to the people you're arguing against. Why would you use the Bible as authoritative to people that the Bible is not authoritative in their life? That's silly. You do not have to bring the Bible into this. You can be an atheist and be against abortion. 26% said they had enough children already. 19% said they weren't emotionally or mentally unprepared. Mothers, stand up if you were emotionally or mentally prepared to have your baby. <laughs> Go ahead. said uh, health-related reasons. One of the reasons that issue one is not good is because although it says, I know all of you have read the amendment, right? You haven't just taken what people have said. You've gone and you read the amendment yourself. And in that amendment, you read, you read that abortion will be restricted after the age of viability unless the health of the patient, in the doctor's opinion, the health of the patient will be affected. Women who's gone through nine months of pregnancy, uh, how many of your health was not adversely affected? That opens the door to anything. Any activist doctor could come up with any reason for late-term abortion. It's one of the huge issues with this. So if the health, any reason after age of viability that a doctor would say will be counted that would affect the mother's health, mental health, financial health, all kinds of health, an activist doctor could come up with any reason, and that what, what opens the door to late-term abortions. Do not tell me that it doesn't. This amendment was written by smart people. And why would smart people write an extremely vague amendment unless they wanted it to be vague? Why in that amendment would the word individual be used? Never does it say individual over 18. It just says any individual. That opens the door to you know what. Well, the pro-choice side says, well, it's already a law in Ohio that you have to have parents' consent. When this becomes in the constitutional, that law, when this becomes in the constitutional, that law will no longer be constitutional. Their arguments do not hold up. 5% said family or friends pressured them. 1.5%. And I chose a deliberately high percentage there. It's anywhere from a half to one and a half when you see in the statistics. So you always get these emotional cases of rape, and they're tragic. And I'm pragmatic here. If I was in charge, I would al- and I know everyone in this room doesn't agree with this, but if I was in charge, I would allow rape, allow rape, excuse me, allow abortion in cases of rape and incest in the life of the mother because that way we eliminate at least 98% of all abortions, and that's a huge win. We will not win if we just want to wipe abortions out, period. We won't win that, friends. We won't win that. I'm pragmatic on that. I'll take 98%. I'll take 98%. And I know some of you don't agree with me. One half percent. One half percent. Mother's life is at risk. Because 
medical technology has advanced so much, it's a small, small, tiny slice. I asked my wife the other day, if you were pregnant and the doctor said that by continuing this pregnancy, you endanger your whole life, what would you do? And she quickly said, I hope, accent on the word hope, she was honest. She said, I hope I would trust God. I cannot expect an unbeliever to trust God. They do not know that language. I'm speaking a foreign language when I say that. It would be wrong of me to expect an unbeliever to trust God with the life of the mother. So all those reasons that I just listed you, almost all of them except for the last two, was about the girl, about the fiancé, about the boyfriend. And God is trying to get our desires toward him. And that, 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 that our hearts would be bent outward and that we would love God and love other people. Abortion is about my desires. I found out in the last four weeks of these discussions that the same arguments come up time and time and time and time and time and time again. Nothing's new under the sun. These are some common reasons that people argue for abortion. For abortion. And that word pro-abortion, oh, they don't like that. They're pro-choice, they say. They're not pro-abortion. How does that work? They're pro the choice to have an abortion. They'll, do, they'll bend over backwards, not to admit they're pro-abortion, but they're pro the choice to have an abortion. Number one argues my body, my choice, which see, it's about me. It's about my body. And you've heard, you've seen, you've seen uh, pro-choice rallies and you've seen chant and signs, my body, my choice, my body, my choice. Well, there's not a person in this room, there's not a single pro-life person that say this, this argument is not about your body. Come on. This argument for you and for us is about the other body that's in you. Both sides are not concerned about the woman's body. They're concerned about that other body. The pro-choice side doesn't want that other body, and the pro-life side wants that other body to live. Pro, my body, my choice is not a logical argument, but here's what I find out. They don't care about logic. It's all emotional for them. And I get that. I do get that. This is about that other body that is every much as created as the image of God as your body is. My body and my choice is not a logical argument. It's an emotional argument. You'll hear, you'll hear people say all the time, well, uh, you can't tell me what to do with my body. I have bodily autonomy. You hear it all the time. There's not a single one of us in this room, male or female, that have bodily autonomy. I can't take my body and go rape another woman. I can't take my, my fist and smack a guy without consequences. I can't put a certain amount of alcohol in my body, put my body in a car and drive it without consequences. I don't have bodily autonomy. You don't either. I, I, I can't abuse my children. I don't have bodily autonomy to abuse my children. I can't, I, I can't abuse Sue. I don't have bodily autonomy. No one has body autonomy. There are literally hundreds of laws on the book that restrict our bodily autonomy. Literally hundreds. 
It used to be when we used to have the draft and they forced you to go overseas. Did you have bodily autonomy? No one has bodily autonomy. No male, no female has bodily autonomy. Hundreds of laws on the book that restrict every female and every male from using their body in any way they want to use their body. That argument doesn't hold up. You'll hear people say that it's not a baby, it's a fetus. Okay. Zygote, embryo, fetus, POC. You know what POC means? Product of conception. Some people refer to the baby as a product of conception. It was referred to me, I promise you, it was referred to me this week as a foreign entity. One lady says, well, if you had a tapeworm in your body, you'd get rid of it because it was eating the life out of you. A tapeworm. They will use any term they can to dehumanize the baby. Because they can't deal with the emotion of what it actually is. Now, this is the truth. Most clear-thinking pro-choice people that do present good arguments, they don't call themselves pro-choice anymore because they know that means the choice to have an abortion. That makes them pro-abortion. Have you heard the language change? Have you heard it? It's reproductive rights. It's a reproductive freedom. Pro-choice is being faded out by the PR people that they pay millions of dollars to learn how to spin this better. It's reproductive rights because everybody's got rights. And even, even ardent, smart, pro-choice people will now admit that it's a human. But you know what? And this happened to me this week. Well, it's human, but it's not a person. I promise that happened. And you know why that's important? Because the Constitution says all persons have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so the debate is over what is a person. It's unbelievably important. And so they say it's, not, it's human, but it's not a person. Call it whatever you want to call it. Call it whatever you want to call it. Pete Buttigieg is our Secretary of Transportation in Joe Biden's cabinet. And he said, there are a lot of parts of the Bible that talk about how life begins with breath. Well, here's what he's referring to. Genesis 2-7 says that God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So Mr. Secretary Buttigieg says that that passage proves that life starts with the first breath. I don't know how many billions of people that's ever been on this planet. There's only one that's been born that way, or that was made that way, one. Only one time did God breathe life. Every other time, it came from the union of a man and woman. And if you say that is how life should come, that, that is how life comes and so life becomes with the first breath, then you've got to argue that all women came from man's rib. If you're going to be logical about it. But logic doesn't make any difference. Abortion is about God. 
God came up with this idea of a uterus and implanting in a uterus and you first be an embryo and then a zygote. And God came up with the age of viability, which we see going down every year with more medical advice. Used to be the age of viability was 23 weeks. Now I've seen it as young as 20 weeks because of medical advances. You've heard this, no uterus, no opinion. If you've been involved in this at all, you've heard that time and time and time again. You don't have a uterus, Mark. You shouldn't have an opinion about it. Well, the soundness and reasonableness of my argument does not depend on gender, first of all. And second of all, the pro-choice crowd cannot win this without man's opinion. If only women get to have an opinion on this and men can't have an opinion and go vote yes, they'll lose. So they're hypocritical because they want man's opinion if they'll vote yes, but they don't want man's opinion if they'll vote no. They cannot win this without man's opinion. And they're hypocritical when they say, I can't have an opinion because my opinion is no, but John can have an opinion because his opinion is yes. That's just completely illogical, but logic doesn't make any difference. It's emotion. So when you hear them on TV next time saying, no uterus, no opinion, they haven't thought through the ramifications of that statement. Abortion is about God. I don't argue like this to people, unbelievers. It's an invalid argument to unbelievers, and I wouldn't be stupid enough to argue like this. But there is a secular argument a secular argument. Friends, I don't know what's going to happen Tuesday. If I was a wagering man and had to make a bet, I would not bet on us winning. But that does not mean, if we lose, that does not mean the fight is over. This will be in court forever. And you know the statistics say that 33% of the, of the women, pregnant women that see uh, a 3D ultrasound before they get the abortion refuse to have the abortion. Let's pay for those ultrasounds. Let's pay for them. There would be lots of ways that we can still be involved. From the height of 1990 to now, 600,000 less abortions. Let's, let's go ahead even if this passes, let's go ahead and continue to bring that number down and down and down. Now, I'm going to be very vulnerable with you. And I'm risking a lot on this because I know there are some people that are out from my head and are watching this today. And they will accuse me of being a hypocrite, but they can that's all right. Part of the sin that God forgave me on August 29th, 1993 was I paid for an abortion. She was 17 years old and I was 19. I've told you before that I could curl your hair with my sin. You don't really believe that, but I could. I picked her up from Taste Creek High School at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning and drove her to the abortion clinic. We pulled into the abortion clinic and she was weeping. 
I did not force her. It was absolutely mutual. But she was just weeping because of the gravity about what was happened. And I can remember telling her, I said, we're between a rock and a hard place. You see, I would not disappoint my dad. And that's why I've told my boys over and over again, you can tell me anything. Now, what I know is the truth now is, yes, dad would have been disappointed, but he would have responded graciously. And we would have had that child and we would have put it up for adoption. But I stand before you today as one of the countless number of men who have paid for abortions. $182, I remember it. I told Sue this when we were dating. And I said, Sue, I feel guilty that I don't feel guilty. And she looked at me and said, that's because you know you've been forgiven. I'm speaking now to people that are still carrying the guilt. Whether you're sitting right here in this room or whether you're watching on the internet. Can I tell you that my sin has been cast as far as the east is from the west? Can I tell you that because I'm in Christ, I'm a new creation? And the old has passed away, and, the, and all things have become new. I'm not flipping about what happened, and that's why I don't go around talking about it. But my story may help one of you. Other people are going to hear this story, and they're going to lambaste me on Facebook and call me a hypocrite for being pro-life. Because I did the same thing a lot of them are doing. It was about me. And I couldn't tell my dad. I couldn't let my dad down like that. So I don't know what you've been through in life. Ladies, I don't know what abortion, how many abortions you've had. Men, I don't know how many you've paid for. But if you carry guilt about that, and you carry that on your shoulders, you do not understand the freedom that forgiveness brings that we have as redeemed people of God. And if you don't understand that right now, you just have not come to grips with the sufficiency of the cross of Christ. Well, we think, yeah, the cross of Christ, it can forgive lying and stealing and cussing. And, but abortion... I'm forgiven. And you can be too. And the only way you will ever be forgiven is by the power that's in the blood of Jesus. And laying that at Jesus and said, take this. And he'll take it from you. Our servers are coming to the table. And friends, this is where the rubber meets the road when it comes to forgiveness, doesn't it? Can he even forgive that?
You better believe he can. Did he forgive David for killing that man to cover up his sin with Bathsheba? (laughs) Don't carry it. Don't walk around slump-shouldered, burdened down by that. There's freedom. That doesn't mean you go out and be flipping about it. That doesn't mean that. You haven't heard me to be able to talk about this except for right here. Do you know what I believe? And I don't have scripture for this. But when my time comes and the Lord takes me home, I believe there's going to be a day when a man or a woman walks up to me and says, I'm your son or your daughter. Praise his holy name. Praise his holy name. And one thing I do know, there's 63 million of them populating heaven right now. And singing the praises of God. And there's one of them waiting for his dad to get there. And I don't know how to be. But I hope I hug them. And I'll probably say I'm sorry and they'll say, don't mention it. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Father, there are people on the sound of my voice that are feeling guilty and feeling not worthy and don't think that you can forgive that. I pray in Jesus' name that they'll believe the truth today and they'll be convinced that you've tossed their sin as far as the east is from the west. You've put it behind your back. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.